You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to the October edition of the Journal Club for Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you? Mate, I'm good. We have had a big, big month. I'm really proud. This was actually our uh, equal most comments we've ever had on Journal Club with a lot of people engaging. So I'm on a high. I'm not surprised. Resuscitation is big on the agenda of many people involved in simulation. Uh, so we're going to do that paper. And then we're also going to look at a couple of others, particularly related to simulation and assessment. So uh, Ben, why don't you just kick us off? Tell us about resuscitation science and what everyone had to say about it. Sure. So this is a pretty tricky paper to kind of give a blurb on. It's a big kind of 40-page monster of an article. It's called Resuscitation Education Science, Educational Strategies to Improve Outcomes from Cardiac Arrest, a scientific statement from the American Heart Association. It's by Cheng et al., and it was published in Circulation this year. And look, essentially the AHA statement is a real call to arms on recess education. And the authors argue that we're really kind of losing the battle in the campaign to educate the masses on good recess. They do quite a clever thing from my perspective in that they really reframe recess education as a pivotal link in the chain of survival, which makes sense in terms of, um, I guess, translating education into clinical practice. It can often be a fairly theoretical thing, but they really hammer home that uh, you get the science right, then you get the education right, and hopefully that will translate into saving lives. They argue essentially that uh, poor quality CPR is a preventable harm, and so they deep dive into the evidence of what's been shown to work best. The methods that they used, um, I guess we're essentially getting a group of smart people and then more and more groups of smart people to discuss and uh, work through those problems. So uh, they started out with a steering group um, and then went through sort of defining the scope of that scientific statement, selecting some topics, getting some working group leads, and then eventually presenting the different working group findings at an AHA education summit and then kind of drafting and revising from there. And then they've published this beautiful article. They hammer out eight categories of specific uh, innovative educational strategies and outline both a kind of general introduction to the ideas behind them and then also make some recommendations based on the evidence that they have available. I'm not going to summarize all of those eight categories, but they are mastery learning and deliberate practice, spaced practice, contextual learning, feedback and debriefing, faculty development, assessment, innovative strategies uh, such as podcasting, etc., and uh, knowledge translation and implementation. And I'd have to say I was a little bit worried that people wouldn't engage this month because it was just going to take them a whole lot of time to get through the article. Uh, But it's a fantastic paper in terms of just taking a stock and really thinking about the way we teach resuscitation, really hammering home that this is potentially uh, the most life-saving intervention that we will teach and that there's actual, actual stakes in this game. Yeah, I think that's well put, Ben. Also, people might have just had a look at the infographic uh, or they might have had a look at the summary statement. And I think that also was a triumph of this article was it really did practice what it preached in terms of thinking about 
uh, the way we learn anything, including how to learn about resuscitation science and to present that information in different ways that might be more amenable for different audiences. Uh, I think the other thing is, of course, it's so broadly applicable now. They've talked about these strategies in terms of resuscitation science, but I think this could just as easily be on a primer on all things clinical education in terms of the methods that they've chosen. So I agree. Pretty amazing stuff and actually a nice illustration of just how rigorous that practice is when, as you described, the groups come together and come up with what they're going to put in their statements. It's um, a tribute to a lot of hard work on a lot of people's part. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty bloody impressive feat. And I would have to say, I get the feeling, and this is based on no evidence whatsoever, but, but I, I think they've got a plan to really follow this up. And I guess the paper that we're going to look at next month is in some ways... Uh, kind of reinforcing some of the principles that come out in this article. But um, Adam mentioned in the Journal Club as well that they're going to be working on some uh, online town halls to try and workshop with people in the simulation community uh, ways to translate this stuff into practice. So I, I think a lot of thought has gone into not just making the paper, but working out how we're going to translate it into the community at large. Yeah, and I think that's worth illustrating that this work doesn't ever stop and these same groups who come up with one lot of consensus papers pretty much have to turn around and then start again on the next iteration, which will be due in another three or four years' time. So uh, I, I'm sure you're right, it is a long game. So look, in terms of the uh, the journal club discussion this month, this was probably the first month where I've really uh, struggled to synthesize such a fantastically diverse um, an extensive conversation. I think because the paper was so big and covered such a broad range of areas, different stuff stuck out to different people. Uh, but in terms of the things that really hit home for me, I think it was clear that as educators, most of us really highly embraced this move from checkbox acquisition or um, annual mandatory competency to moving to a mastery-based learning model. The paper's depth was really well respected, but it was acknowledged a few times as a bit of a barrier to entry for some reason. There were people mentioning sort of cognitive overload, uh, exhausting was kind of mentioned a few times. Um, and then finally, uh, I think probably one of the most consistent, not concerns necessarily, but barriers that people identified to implementing this stuff was either money or institutional unlearning. And they felt that regarding implementation of these innovative teaching techniques in particular that those two seem to come up a lot so you know early in the month's conversation it appeared pretty clear that many journal clubbers were unimpressed by the institutional emphasis that we have on annual cpr competency training uh, they were aware of data that shows relatively poor skills retention and i get the feeling that the group was pretty keen to jump on board with mastery-based learning it was acknowledged actually i thought that eve did this quite ni nicely that mandatory competencies aren't without some benefits not necessarily always for the learners but there's definitely some for the organization i mean eve asked what does mandatory training do it signals to employees that we think it's important that they know how to do cpr even if it doesn't give them the skills she argued that it exerts control over employees, which is part of a bigger institutional effort to standardize behavior and maintain power. And it makes big bodies money and more powerful and recognized. And it allows people who teach the courses to engage in some of the best practices available. Um, and I thought I always love, uh, since Eve started coming along, you always get that really interesting different perspective from her anthropology background. 
I think with regards to the paper's depth, Susan Ella mentioned sort of experiencing a little cognitive overload and she certainly wasn't alone. Um, Most journal clubbers mentioned in some ways the length of the paper and the benefit of the release of the infographics, uh, like the ones from canadium.org, and they provide an entry point to anchor readers. And while the overload was real for many, Jesse came along and he also argued that, look, I think this is one of those gateway drug type articles that will hopefully serve as a conduit to some great educational theory and learning science for a whole lot of clinical educational enthusiasts and hopefully even some hospital administrators. I guess leaping on that hospital administration front, this idea of financial barriers and also institutional unlearning came up repeatedly. It was frequently mentioned that changing the way we teach resuscitation is really, really hard. Financial constraints were a consistent feature of concern, and as uh, Farouk Jaffrey argued, it really comes down to monetary value at the executive level, and I think the bringing up of finances is so important and relevant to the survival of such programs. Christina Chung acknowledged as well that the complexities of working in a system with finite resources. And she asked, where does resuscitation sit in the hierarchy of ever competing priorities in any healthcare department? Surely in the ED and for those on the code team, it's a no-brainer. But how about for those on general wards, in clinics, in residential clear? A number of posts also acknowledged, as uh, Sarah McNamee did, that unlearning is hard. Changing how we learn and teach is also hard. And Shannon McNamara took the frame that overall, I think institutions aren't opposed to quality care. I just think the boat is very, very large and difficult to steer in a new direction, which certainly seemed fair to me. And then finally, uh, Adam Cheng swung by, which we're always privileged to have. Uh, And he mentioned that he really hopes this paper is a call to arms for the resuscitation education community. And he mentioned those town halls I've already discussed. Um, He also pointed out that uh, doing things differently isn't necessarily more expensive. And actually, there's some evidence of some of these strategies in the long haul being cheaper as well as more effective. So it might just be that saying things are expensive is an easy out for some of us who aren't very keen to change. How do you find the discussion, Vic? Uh, Yes, broad-ranging, as you mentioned, and definitely tinged with that cynicism that many of us who work in big organisations and who've suffered through mandatory training feel. And I think some of that is actually valid because if you were to have the homunculus of what makes a difference in resuscitation, then compare it to how it gets educated and what people concentrate on, I think it has been a mismatch. I mean, we should really have been concentrating a lot on a very small number of basic skills. And instead, I think we've seen a whole range of overcomplicated educational strategies for what might be regarded as icing on the top, or maybe even things that aren't particularly evidence-based, like many of the drugs in resuscitation. So uh, I think this puts things more squarely saying, well, what makes a difference and how do we help embed that? And I think having had the experience of the uh, LADL RQI system, which is a low-volume, high-frequency approach that concentrates on those basic skills that actually ends up costing us less because we've got machine-driven assessment and feedback, uh, I think there's plenty of room for organizational change here. So, yeah, I uh, really enjoyed the discussion and respected it and uh, thought plenty of valid points there. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, like in five years' time to look back and listen to this podcast again, and I wonder how much will have changed by then based on uh, some of these conversations. And 
I certainly don't want to like portray the sort of stereotypical image that there's a bunch of Voldemort-like hospital administrators out there trying to prevent change because I reckon there's lots of people who really care about patient outcomes in their hospital and want to do these innovative things. But I think this is also, it's important to acknowledge, relatively uh, new conversations in some ways. Yeah, and I think um, I will just give a little plug about my one little disappointment, although it's probably more a content thing than a process thing, but I still think in a lot of these things we should be thinking how do we educate effectively so that people don't resuscitate when they shouldn't uh, because I think for me that's emerging as probably just as important in my practice as anything to do with good resuscitation is when not to start it or when to stop it. Yeah, I feel like there's some stories behind that statement that we'll have to explore over a beer. <laughs> well, you're in pediatrics, slightly different. <laughs> it is actually, and I put that up. I mean, this is a lot of work, and I, I would have seen one or two. I kid you not, I would have seen one or two actual cardiac arrests in my decade-long career. If you if you're not in PICU, it's pretty rare. It's very hard to keep up a skill for something that's going to happen once a decade. It's a tribute to all you excellent pediatric doctors and how well you keep those children. Yes, it's got absolutely nothing to do with the fact that children are just evolution-based to kind of stay alive until breeding age. Okay, well, um, we watched this space. You've also got an expert opinion, is that right? I did. So we were lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Mark Berg this uh, month, and he is a past chair of the American Heart Association is PEDS uh, committee, and he's also a pediatric intensivist, and he's a simulation educator at Stanford University. And when I Googled him, and i hoping I got the right Dr. Mark Berg, he also kind of became a uh, instant celebrity one day when he ran to look after somebody who'd been uh, struck, I think, by a ball at a um, baseball game. Excellent. Thank you, Ben. And I've just Googled that same article. It was actually an adult female patient who'd been hit in the head by a piece of broken bat. Yeah, fairly dramatic. We must must put this link in the show notes as well. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm sure he'll be thrilled. I'm sure that's his, you know, he's not embarrassed about that at all. Simulcast. So, um, look, uh, Mark, uh, it's a pretty hard paper to kind of come up with an expert opinion on. And so Mark took the kind of stance that he was going to really give us a taste test and an overview of the individual um, educational strategies that are outlined. I'm just going to quote one paragraph from his commentary. He says, look, um, as is uniformly the case with AHA scientific statements, they're exhaustive, authoritative, and timely. This one is no exception. In addition to the review of and foundation in science and its incredibly practical scope and approach to this broad and complex topic, It can and should be used not only as a complete review of the topic, but as a toolkit for improving the issues addressed. Too often we find review statements in medicine which present the foundation and latest information on a given topic, but fail to guide the reader in next steps. This scientific statement stands in contrast to this model, giving the interested reader more of what they need to make positive changes in their programs in resuscitation science and ultimately move the needle in effective training and saving lives. So I thought it's a beautiful uh, expert commentary and download our PDF to check it out. Simulcast. All right. Well, we might uh, go on to our couple of extra papers. Does that sound all right to you? It sounds excellent. 
Okay, so as I said, we've got a couple of papers that are based around the theme of assessment and then one little follow-up paper that uh, in response to one we did earlier on in the year. But the first paper I wanted to talk about uh, relates to putting in IV cannulas and how good medical students are at that and how we might be able to train them better if we use mastery learning. So the title of the paper is Simulation-Based Mastery Learning in Medical Students, Skill Retention at One-Year Follow-Up by Fredericks and colleagues uh, from Munster in Germany. And uh, essentially this group outlines in their introduction something we all know, which is intravenous cannulation is a core skill, uh, and we really want to both make the training for that efficient but also make it stick so that the skills that students acquire are often in simulation, they can actually translate to practice, and more importantly, they retain their good practice when they're out there doing it on the real patients. So the hypothesis these people had was that uh, sure, it was a good idea to learn this on, for instance, a uh, simulated arm. But if you added in mastery learning, that this would be more effective. And for those who haven't read much about mastery learning, I'm going to not quite do it justice here, but explain that essentially this is an approach where there is a preset clear expectation of a passing standard i.e. there's a fixed standard people have to achieve before they can pass so there's no outcome variance but learners can have various ways of getting there so there could be multiple attempts to try and achieve that uh, variable process in order to get there so it's you know it's in line with a lot of other things we're doing but the mastery approach says you have to achieve this minimum passing standard before you can say you're done unlike just for instance a time-based strategy or something else which is come and do this and practice for two hours and then we'll give you a tick irrespective of what people achieve. So the paper then goes through some of the research around mastery learning which would be again familiar to many of our listeners, uh, things related to central lines, lumbar punctures and other procedural skills that a number of folks, particularly the group at Northwestern, have made popular and done good research about. And they mentioned something I didn't even know about, which is now there are reporting guidelines from that group uh, related to mastery-based learning research. So as I said, what they did was aim to look at the difference between standard training and training that had a mastery learning embedded in it. So they had two groups of medical students, one of which, which had 131 people in it, was their control group who spent two hours, including one hour of sim and one hour of practicing on each other as the standard group for training in IV cannulation. They had a second group with 133 students in it, which was their mastery learning group, which had, again, two hours of simulation, but with this peer feedback and training very explicitly towards this uh, checklist, which described what was the um, mastery practice of IV cannulation. Now, these were medical students in their year three. And interestingly, there were actually sort of historical controls in that one year got the standard training, and then the following year got the mastery learning approach. And then for both of those groups, they measured their performance uh, at 12 months. So again, their tests were 12 months apart because they'd actually done the training 12 months apart. Um, but for each individual group, they did the training and then got measured 12 months later. You with me so far, Ben? 
I am. It's a little bit similar to sort of Betsy Hunt's paper, isn't it, on rapid cycle deliberate practice. I think they did a similar yeah. thing with their old, their, you know, one cohort of residents auditing their simulation outcomes and then changing the program. Yeah, and it's a pretty pragmatic way to do research without yeah, compromising the experience of other groups. Mm. Um, obviously, as with any historical controls, you might end up with other influences over time on those results, but you know we understand that's a limitation. So then they did an interesting thing, which is obviously they're trying to decide which group is better. So they have to, as part of mastery learning, there is generally an expert agreement on what is the minimum passing score. So they had a checklist. It had 21 points you could score. And interestingly, they decided the minimum passing score was 20 out of 21. And that was all done uh, before they actually did the testing on the students. So what did they actually find? Drum roll. I think the main take-home message is both groups actually did quite well. In fact, almost everybody scored 18, 19, 20, or 21 out of 21. So let's just put it out there, everybody did pretty well. Uh, But what they actually quote in terms of the outcomes from each group is higher overall test scores in the mastery-based learning group, i.e. they had a median score of 20 out of 21 compared to the control score, which was 19 out of 21. Now, that actually doesn't sound like a very big difference between those two groups, but given that they had set their minimum passing score at 20, it means that the pass rates between the groups were very different, a 74% pass rate in the mastery learning group compared with a 33% pass rate in the control group. So how they've explained this uh, actually shows that depending on how you report something, you can end up with a very different looking result. And I guess we've just got to think to ourselves, what is the difference between a score of 19 or 20 out of 21? Because that's essentially the difference between the two groups. Uh, I did have a look at their checklist. It looks pretty, if you read it and you've ever put in an IV cannula, it makes sense to you. Obviously, a lot of the points that you get are related to the preparation, the preparation of the patient, how you do it afterwards. There's a little bit related to the pure technical skill of puncturing the skin and advancing the cannula, but I think that's appropriate for any procedural skill. There's a lot more to it than just that bit. But I don't know that I really feel that someone who got 20 over 19 out of 21 is actually doing a heaps better cannula. Uh, So I guess maybe I was a little sceptical, even though I was very excited when I read that thing about the pass rate. Then when I read it a little bit more deeply, I thought, "Eh, actually, I don't know if these groups are so completely different to how it's been quoted. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I, I feel a little uncomfortable about the sales pitch. I think um I think you know, you could consider it quite promising. They do acknowledge that concept of the retest phenomenon, that they're also comparing a group who'd essentially gone the check through the checklist multiple times and then testing another group who hadn't gone through the checklist at all was the impression I got. So the the fact that they've, you know, repeated doing that checklist assessment multiple times before is going to be a confounder and then the difference i actually found quite confusing the first time i read it because i couldn't quite work out how those numbers were so uh, hugely different um i also thought that uh peripheral iv cannulation was an interesting choice for a group of fourth year medical students in that it acknowledged that they were all going on to clinical practice uh, for the rest of the year and on average they all did 20 um but it's kind of a skill that in your 
junior years, you just practice a heck of a lot. Um, and so it being one of your primary ward duties that I wasn't sure how much you would be able to trace that back to actually the educational intervention when it's something you just kind of learn on the job as well. Yeah, I think that's always uh, difficult when you've got other things that contribute to the performance that you're assessing. Uh, And I agree. The other thing is, and I think this is a problem with all the mastery-based learning things, is you essentially teach to the test. Now, that does mean that you perform well on the test, and it may well mean that you also do a really good job of it in clinical practice. But I think for a study like this where you've got a group who haven't seen the test and then you use that as your test of them, uh, obviously they um, don't have exactly this retest phenomenon that uh, that would tend to advantage that group. And then they get one less mark. Like that's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> really. I know. I know. I'm surprised they did as well as they did, to be honest, the ones who uh, didn't get the mastery learning. Good job, controls. Good job. Yes. Anyway, I think in summary, look, I really want to believe I love the concept of mastery learning, uh, but I don't think this is an overwhelming result, which I think, to be honest, I think maybe they overcalled when they quoted that pass rate. You're listening to Simulcast. All right. So do some mastery learning if you can. It's a good idea, but also recognize that other training we do also is pretty effective as well. So going on to the next paper, which moves to a more advanced group of learners and a bit of a different issue with that, Um, this relates to simulation-based assessment, which we've talked a little bit about before with Tim Chaplin about the Canadian group who are doing this in emergency medicine. They've got a collaborative. Uh, But in fact, this is a US group who've published a paper called Gender Bias in Simulation-Based Assessments of Emergency Medicine Residents. And this is by Siegelman and colleagues from Emory in the US. And essentially, this paper looks to see if there is a gender bias uh, when residents, i.e. trainees in emergency medicine, are rated on these simulation-based assessments. So they give a background in the introduction that describes something that we tend to know, which is that there are gender disparities in medicine, and in particular in emergency medicine is the literature that they go through. And Then they kind of look particularly at the literature around assessment in relation to the assessments of on-shift reports. And there was a hypothesis that that was the fact that these were, and I quote, subjective or they had a lot of subjectivity. So the idea that men with their unconscious bias might be rating women lower uh, was the hypothesis. Obviously, that's something like that is pretty hard to prove, but definitely there were lower scores in relation to gender in some of that literature that was the background to this study. So uh, this group had the hypothesis that given that simulation-based assessment was more structured, consistent, slash standardized evaluation environment, that this gender bias would be less likely to happen. And uh, the short answer is they were right. There was no gender bias. Um, But to explain a little bit about what they did, they, um, because I think this is relevant too. So this, there is also a US based collaboration of emergency medicine residencies that were working on simulation based assessment and creating quality OSCEs or Uh, assessment items that could be used across different uh, residency programs. Uh, The paper actually documents 
some of the content areas in which these were, but they're across the breadth of the emergency medicine curriculum. And a lot of really good work that's gone into the validity assessment of these items, again, beyond the scope of both my expertise as well as this podcast. Uh, But to cut a long story short, they did some good work to make sure these were robust assessment items. So what they did was uh, over three years, they had 48 faculty, 102 residents uh, with pretty evenly spread uh, gender mix across those. And for all of those groups who were engaged in either being assessors or residents being assessed, there was a mean passing score of 65%. And again, they used some statistics that related to what is the contribution of the rater, the ratee and the item to people's individual scores and then looked at how gender affected those and they found that in fact it didn't. So uh, I mean their conclusion is that that is because this is a so-called more standardized or um, less subjective assessment but I would say there's probably multiple potential explanations for it but uh, nonetheless I think it's good work to do because it sort of points to the fact that this is a complex area and there may be gender bias in some ways and shapes and forms, but to understand it better is probably a good thing. Yeah, I um, I really like this paper. I My only concern, I guess, was I felt there was a little bit of conclusion creep uh, in that the conclusion sort of supported him as an assessment tool um, that may uh, avoid gender bias, whereas I felt like the real learning point that was a, with appropriate system checks in place with regards to assessment and good design, simulation assessment can be unbiased, which I think is probably a slightly um, different conclusion. Uh, and I agree, all simulation assessment is not the same. This was done very well, uh, and I agree, gratifying result, but just because you're doing sim uh, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a robust assessment process in relation to gender bias or indeed anything else. Yeah, and this was just really good role modeling of high-quality assessment design, I think, so I think that's what I'm going to take away from it. Okay, well, uh, mention our final paper, which is really just in here for a uh, mention because, in fact, we've talked about this before. So this is a paper by Elizabeth Malloy and Margaret Bierman, and this is a follow-up to the intellectual streaking paper that we featured in our Don't Forget the Bubble simulcast episode. And we're going to pretend that it's because of the feedback from our podcast, but I'm pretty sure they wrote this before that, uh, where they've changed intellectual streaking to intellectual candor. So the title of this paper is Embracing the Tension Between Vulnerability and Credibility, Intellectual Candor in Health Professions Education. And it uh, revisits and re-explores a lot of the things that we talked about when we analysed their intellectual streaking paper, which is about how it's very good as an educator to demonstrate vulnerability at a number of levels. It can help learning. uh, It can help all sorts of things for our learners and indeed for the faculty themselves. Uh, But the risk is that by Uh, showing this vulnerability that folks might lose some sense of credibility um, when their learners really want to believe that they're uh, great people and they do a great job. Is there a threat that by showing our vulnerability, people might take us less seriously? So you did a bit of a deep dive on this, Ben, last time. Uh, What did you think of the uh, revisit? Well, it's interesting because I think a number of points that came up in the Journal Club discussion um, had 
essentially been addressed by this paper. Um, I really like their definition of candor in that they specifically describe it as an improvisational expression of doubts, thoughts, and problems with the dual purpose of learning and promoting others' learning, which I think is just a really nice definition. And uh, they taught me a few sort of new clever terms. Like In particular, I quite liked the idea of the hero narrative and um, as in that idea that, oh, when you're pretending to show intellectual candor that you'll tell this story of how you used to be uh, foolish and then made this incredible mistake and but now you're nothing like that so you're kind of simultaneously uh being faux uh vulnerable while actually simultaneously build, building yourself up as the the hero of the moment who's come from a, a different place um and the other really interesting kind of concept that i took from it is this idea of rituals as tools to enforce the status quo uh, which i'm just going to have to process a little bit more Yes, I think this would be another thing Eve Purdy would love with her anthropological lens in these ritualized interactions reflecting our social structures, positions and status, uh, which we know are at play in our conversations between learners and teachers and uh, whether this sort of approach reinforces or threatens these ritualized interactions and whether that's a good or a bad thing, I think uh, is um, definitely relevant. But like you, I think one of the things I really liked about this paper is it does call out the faux vulnerability and uh, this idea that people are pretending they're exposing their vulnerability and they're not really. They're just telling a story in which secretly they're the hero, uh, I think is is a good point. If you're going to be doing this, you've got to actually be serious about it and you've got to be thinking about the effect it does have on the learning, many of which are very good things. So um, in between these two things, I found myself at a conference with Liz Malloy who gave yet more brilliant talks all about feedback. She really knows what she's talking about in this regard and has done a lot of work really trying to understand how we uh, navigate these conversations. So I'm looking forward, of course, to more from them. Yes, she seems like a good egg. (laughs) <laughs> she is indeed. All right, Ben. Well, uh, maybe we better finish off by you telling us what we've got coming up in November. Absolutely. So uh, this is going to be our final paper of 2018, sadly. Um We are going to look at a really exciting paper from the Journal of Resuscitation entitled Hospitals with More Active Participation in Conducting Standardized In-Situ Mock Codes Have Improved Survival After In-Hospital Cardiopulmonary Arrest. Uh, It's by Josie et al. And uh, I suspect it's going to be on a lot of funding applications in the future, Um, but uh, hopefully a nice kind of happy paper to finish on. Yes, I am obviously going to love this conversation Uh, as one who sat in a debrief room with 75 people today after an inside you sim. um, I'm certainly hoping that it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and so this is an ecological study um, where they do find uh, an actual survival improvement in patients who have actually arrested. So if you uh, have a quiet hospital that doesn't have many seats, many arrests in total, they argue that by looking at the actual arrest outcomes individually, they've been able to show some benefit. So it's pretty exciting. Uh, I would like to mention that I have uh, heard the concerns that there was not enough romance in this month's uh, case study. So that has (laughs) definitely been addressed. My apologies to Susan Elder et al. for that. Uh, And I did just also want to plug that we this month we released our 
um, simulcast journal club annual. So that's the second one. Uh, it's downloadable from the website. It's in PDF format. It's completely free and it's got the last uh, 12 months of journal club, all of the expert commentaries and some internalized links to the podcast as well. I'm really proud of it. Very grateful to all the experts who've participated. And I hope that uh, in combination with the uh, original one, that it starts forming a really good simulation curriculum for some of your fellows and uh, other simulationists who's out there. Absolutely, Ben. I mean, congratulations. You should be proud of that document because it's uh, a little masterpiece, both in terms of the summaries and indeed the papers it reviews. While we're talking news, uh, just a heads up for simulcast listeners, Ben and I are going to be covering IMSH in San Antonio in January. So that's a big simulation conference, the biggest one in the US, probably in the world. And uh, if you can't get there and you can see some interesting things on the program you would like us to cover, please let us know. Uh, otherwise, we'll give you an update closer to the time about the uh, raps we'll be doing each day and also the speakers and other folks we'll be interviewing so i'm really looking forward to that ben oh my goodness i am so pumped it's going to be great excellent all right well uh farewell to october happy november and it's victoria brazil signing off with ben simon uh for simulcast you're listening to simulcast <laughs>